The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. My name is Mangala Kanesan. Today, I am grateful to have Dr. Stu Marvel here on the show as my guest. Stu, thank you so much for being here. Delighted. Dr. Stu Marvel is an assistant professor in the Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department at Emory University and was previously a lecturer at the University of Leeds School of Law and Distinguished Scholar in Residence with the Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative at Emory Law School. She has a PhD and LLM from Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, Canada. Stu is interested in the intersection of kinship, reproduction, family law, and vulnerability theory. In 30 seconds, how would you define vulnerability theory? What's your elevator speech? Okay, the elevator speech. Well, I have taught vulnerability theory uh, around the world now um, and have certainly tried to condense it for both friends and family. And what I usually say is, is that it's important to understand vulnerability theory as not being what you imagine it would be, <laughs> that it's not weakness. It's not a synonym for marginalized groups or, you know, uh, um, or people at the fringes of society. In fact, vulnerability theory is uh, a really important universal framework to try to rethink some fundamental questions around how we are as people. So um, because it comes from law, the idea of the the liberal legal subject is at the heart of our our current conceptions of law and justice, right? The idea that we're um, autonomous individuals who can stride bravely into the world, signing contracts and, and shaping our autonomous futures. Vulnerability theory says, no, 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 hold on. As a matter of fact, we're not that at all. Look around you. Look at, look at how we exist in the world. None of us are individuals. We're all these, you know, in, intensely vulnerable by the, the nature of our, our, our human experience. Um, creatures that, that depend upon and need each other. So vulnerability theory just really tries to reshape this fundamental idea around what it is to be human, how we think about our relationship to each other, and what we think the responsibility of the state is to uh, to these individuals and to society if we throw away that myth of that liberal legal subject. That's an excellent elevator speech. Hmm. You said that vulnerability is not about weakness. Hmm. Can you tell me what vulnerability is and what it means? Yeah. So vulnerability, as we use it um, in the VHC, and again, it's quite different as folks tend to understand it, just uh, circulating as a popular term. Um, the way that we think about vulnerability is as something that is fundamental to the human condition. It's the ontological reality of being human. Uh, that just means the, to be in a body, to be existing in the world, to be born, to live, and to die. Right? That, that is to be vulnerable. That's to be open to, um, to harm, certainly. But it's also to be open to, to change, both positive and negative. You know, it's because we're vulnerable that we, we create things like families. Right? We create things like societies. You know, that we, 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 we um, exist within these complex or global institutions because of that vulnerability. So it's really important for the theory not to think of it as more or less vulnerable, i.e. more or less weak, more or less dependent, um, it's it that that's fundamental, unchangeable um, nature of, of the human condition as, as one of being vulnerability is really critical to the paradigm. So how did you become interested in vulnerability theory? Um, well, I, I was interested in Martha Feynman's work for a long time um, before I came down to, to join the VHC. I, of course, knew her scholarship on dependency, uh, her work as a, as a family law scholar and theorist, and her um, 
uh, her work editing books around queer legal theory as well, of which there wasn't so much in the academy. So I was lucky to come down and be a visiting scholar with the Feminism and Legal Theory Project, and then I just got more involved with the project, and I ended up working with Martha for nine on eight years now. That's a, that's a long while. Yeah. So what's the research that you're currently doing? Yeah, so I'm really interested um, in the relationship between kinship and law, right? So families and, and legal forms. Uh, and I look at particular folks that fall outside of traditional family formats. So things like the heterosexual reproductive family. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in LGBTQ people and how their forms of reproduction uh, may or may not sort of um, fall within sort of these traditional uh, legal norms and standards. Um, so this includes, of course, family law. I, I teach family law and I think of myself as a family law scholar. But I've also done a lot of research and writing around reproductive technology, which intersects with sort of health law and medical law as well as things like um, uh, gender reassignment surgery um, and uh, the legal recognitions that may or may not come after that, which is sort of under the area of administrative law. So this, it's at the intersection of these three big kind of legal domains is where I think of myself as existing as a queer feminist legal scholar. How does vulnerability theory play into that? Well, in lots of ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, it really helps me think outside of just identity categories. You know, I, th I think it's important for um, pol political purchase, for some analytical purchase, to, to think of, of identitarian categories of, of uh, embodiment and of existence. But when we're thinking about law and we're trying to understand the ways in which legal structures and institutions operate, uh, we're, we're quite limited if we begin and end with identity, you know, um, particularly in terms of remedies. Right? It's, uh, U.S. law, as I'm sure you know, um, is really limited in terms of what we can do for for example, an anti-discrimination claim based on sexuality or sexual orientation. So vulnerability helps us think beyond um, those identitarian categories to, to consider more what I think of as sort of intersectional institutions, intersectional legal institutions. So as, as I mentioned, health law, family law, um, administrative law, how they all work in concert. Uh, something like vulnerability theory lets us look at this big picture and the ways in which these, these legal institutions inform and, and structure each other. Um, it also helps me think about um, how and where reproductive privilege are conferred. Right? Again, vulnerability theory is not about the weak. It's not a theory of the marginalized. It really looks at the ways in which power and privilege are currently given to some and restricted um, for, for others. So I think when we, we're talking about something like reproductive politics, it's really important to consider not just those folks that are falling out of the system, but how and why does the system privilege and, and give access and give benefits to certain forms of, of reproduction, certain forms of, of uh, certain reproductive modalities. What are the practical implications of your research? Um, well, I hope that there's many. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, every researcher aims for this. Um, I mean, I, what I'm doing really right now is mapping existing structures around family law, um, around parentage in particular, um, and looking at the ways in which many LGBTQ folks and families fall out of those existing models. Um, so maybe people don't want to slot in, you know, as, as, um, as I'm sure our listeners know, uh, people can get married now, same as couples if they want to in the United States, but many don't want to, right? So there's, there's, there's sort of a, um, could be a choice because of a fear that, or a concern that um, marriage represents a traditional institution, one that people are not interested in entering. Um, but it could also be because they don't have families that match that two-parent sort of dyadic form, right? They could have parent, families that have three parents, four parents, that simply can't be contained within these existing structures, right? So I'm really interested, again, in looking at the ways in which these the, the forms that exist actually often can't expand. Maybe you don't want them to expand to be able to um, to respond to the more complicated 
uh, forms of kinship that are actually existing. Um, so again, just by, by focusing not just on marginalized communities, but on power, right, and the ways in which this two-parent model of reproduction uh, continues to structure both our family law and access to, to reproductive technology, which I can talk about in a second, um, I think it tells us much more than just focusing on, you know, marginalized people and people that have already fallen out of systems. It's helpful to look at the ways in which those systems themselves are, are designed. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, well, again, I, I really hope to, to, I think, pry open this two-parent model of kinship, I think it's a really limited frame that doesn't work for all kinds of people. I mean, even heterosexual folks that have, you know, that have gotten divorced and remarried, step-parents, step-children, I mean, that already gives a lie to the idea that we just have this two-parent model um, that is the only functional structure for, for, for Western reproduction and care. Um, so I, I, I think that it's, there's important implications, um, again, for not just people that are already living outside of these models, but it's, it's matters for people that are trying to get access to things like reproductive technology to create their families. So, for example, um, should a lesbian couple and a known sperm donor, a friend of theirs who's donating sperm, should they go into a clinic in Georgia, um, they won't be able to just use that sperm right away. Right? Um, were they a, a, a straight couple, a, a man and a woman, they were in a sexual, sexual relationship, they were already um, you know, actively having sex, they could just go right in. They would be, they'd be have to have the, the basic screening, the basic tests, but they would be allowed to to use fresh sperm relatively soon in order to try an insemination. Right? Because we privilege heterosexual rep reproduction, we think that this this a male and a female together is the proper model, is sort of the, the, the natural biological frame. Lesbian couple and their straight friend, sorry, well, male, somebody who's got sperm, <laughs> um, they go in. They don't have that experience. They've got to go through all kinds of tests. Um, they've got to go through both um, psychological and legal screening with independent legal advice for the for the known donor. And then his sperm has got to be frozen for a minimum of six months before they can use it. They have to pay for all of that. Um, and then they have to use sperm that had been frozen, which could have potentially less effect than fresh sperm, um, at the end of that six-month quarantine period. Right? So already, the ways in which these families are being treated are, are very different when it comes to getting access to, to basic reproductive care. Um, and, and reproductive health benefits. So I'm, I'm really interested right, in the ways in which these, these disparities operate. And again, I think it's, it's, yeah, you can't just look at the ways in which people are treated differently. We need to understand this idealized model, and the ways in which that norm operates, um, i.e. heterosexual reproduction as being this, the, the, sort of the proper mode in order to, um, to know how to respond to folks that are falling out of those models. Do those laws vary based on state? Mm -hmm. And what's the rhetoric around creating them? Yeah, I mean, they vary based on state and on country. So in Canada, where I'm from, um, is starting to change because there's been so much pressure from folks like myself and research groups that I've been associated with trying to get things um, reformed to both a provincial and a, and a federal level. Um, in the U.S., it often depends upon your private medical insurer. So depending on when, where you get your, who your employer is and where you get your health care from, that could shift what, um, what infertility looks like, how infertility, infertility is diagnosed, what sort of care you get covered. So in the United States, a lot of what you can do is based not necessarily on state or federal law, mm -hmm. but on what your health insurance will allow? What is paid for is, okay. is with what your health care uh, will allow. But this, this, sort of, this quarantine comes out of HIV AIDS and a concern that um, the HIV virus can incubate for six months. Uh, before that, that, that it shows up in the individual being tested. So they need to get go through blood tests before they donate, blood tests at the end of that six-month quarantine period after they donated sperm, and if they're clean then, then that sperm can be used. But again, 
would not be the case were that woman to be having sex with the with the donor. In that case, that donor would be a father, and the state wouldn't intrude and wouldn't, wouldn't make these assumptions um, about risk, which they do for um, for basically treating a known donor like a legal and medical stranger. Mm-hmm. How does vulnerability theory shift the way that you look at that? I mean, as I said, it, it helps us think about power. You know, it helps us think about the ways in which um, certain forms of reproduction have been been responded to, have been been centralized as being the norm, and it's those that fall outside of those those governing structures that need to make a claim for for support or for difference or for for care. You know, so I'm I'm really interested in again understanding the ways in which we've almost invisible to us now because we're so accustomed to thinking about things like nature, you know, as as um, as being rooted within bio- biological reproduction and kinship, um, challenging these these ideals. As, as being the only way to create families and saying, you know, recognizing that there's all kinds of different forms of, of kinship and care that can, can be produced. Not, again, from vulnerable groups or, or marginalized groups, but looking at the ways in which the vulnerability of the heterosexual family is one that the state is always responding to. The heterosexual family is a vulnerable institution, you know? um, but it's one in which the state has protected and has insulated through all kinds of legal and social and, and um, healthcare mechanisms. Can you frame that using resilience? I think that the state is very concerned with ensuring the ongoing resilience of the family, the caretaking unit, because it needs it, right? The state, the state needs private families to do the bulk of that caregiving and that, that, um, that caregiving labor so it doesn't have to, to pay for it, frankly, right? So we need privatized families to be resilient right? so that this, the, they can reproduce the next generation. Um, but it's only, again, certain forms of family the state has designated as being proper, as being you know, uh, worthy of having that kind of, of having their, their vulnerability ameliorated. So I'm interested in thinking, using the theory to think beyond um, that one heterosexual model to, to consider how we can make all kinds of families resilient and all forms of kinship structures re- resilient um, far beyond this one sort of dyadic heterosexual model. Can you tell me more about how family unit provides caregiving labor for the state? Mm, well, I mean, and, and to that you go to old Feynman. So, so Martha's work, before she sort of shifted towards the the VHC and the vulnerability paradigm, was all about this, right? So her her, her early books were entirely about um, not entirely, but heavily about the ways in which um, these the distinction between inevitable and derivative dependency is one that is sort of poorly responded to by the state, right? That it, it takes all that the, the need for private care and just puts it into the the, the home. So the inevitable dependency of the child must be responded to by a caregiver, right? And so that caregiver themselves becomes derivatively dependent upon either their husband, you know, in this traditional model where it's the wife at home, they need the husband to, to support them in order for them to care for their children, or non-ideally for the state, um, becomes derivatively dependent upon um, social benefits, you know, upon some kind of public publicly funded subsidy. So that the, the history of the U.S., um, and particularly in recent decades, has been to try to sort of retracting these publicly provided state subsidies and in order to pretend that this derivative dependence essentially doesn't exist. You know, the people can just somehow care for the kids, have a full-time job. If not, they're being lazy, get on work fair, right? But this, like, the whole model of it makes no sense, frankly. Um, so Martha's work has long been concerned with the ways in which these caretaking responsibilities haven't been really, really centralized or prioritized by states. It's all been made private labor. Um, and she's really just taken that model and made it 
society-wide to show the, the ways in which none of us are independent. All of us are derivatively dependent upon our, our institutions, upon our, our, our things like healthcare, the workplace, on each other. Um, as again, as part of the what it is to be human, we just have these narratives about being independent and autonomous as being good things that we're so um, inured in. We've been taught them since we were children. It's really hard to sort of break this idea that independence is good, dependence is bad. That's an idea that I think is really strong in the United States. Is mm. it true elsewhere as well? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think less so. I think me being a Canadian and a Canadian legal scholar has helped uh, have a different perspective um, on this cult of individualism <laughs> that I think exists in the, in the United States. Um, I'm going to a conference in, uh, in Sweden in a month, and certainly the Scandinavian model of a vulnerability conference. The Scandinavian model has been one that is much more historically concerned with the well-being of, um, of its people, you know, a sense of society, a sense of sort of solidarity, whether you call it social democracy um, or you know, having a socialized healthcare system. But again, a sense of the social, even the term social, social democracy has, is demonized in the United States in a way that is, is quite shocking. You know, when you think that the state is really there for the people, you'd imagine. I mean, this is, we, we, we pay taxes, we vote them in. You know, there's an assumption, I think, in many of the countries that the state is supposed to be acting on behalf of some kind of public good. We can debate what that public good is or is supposed to look like, but the absence of any kind of sense of, of that sort of shared public solidarity in the U.S. Um, can be quite shocking for folks that come from other countries. Do you think that's something that is an inherent part of American culture? I mean, I think this idea of the liberal legal subject, right, of this, this autonomous actor at the heart of our systems of law and justice you know, it makes it really difficult to think outside of that. We just, we valorize these ideals of independence and autonomy and individualism um, in ways that just seem like they're unqualified goods. Of course, it's good to be autonomous, right? Of course, it's good to be um, independent. And of course, it's bad to be vulnerable. Why would you want to be vulnerable? It's terrible. You can get hurt. I would much prefer to be autonomous in my wonderful castle with all of my, you know, my my, my guns and independence. So I, I think that that there, there are, again, some, some fundamental ideals at the core of, of the American self-conception, which can differ um, in other countries, that maybe are easier to see when you come from another country. We weren't, weren't raised in that way. And I would, you know, when I was, I was, Canada has its own problems. I'm not saying Canada's not a perfect, perfect place. But, you know, just, just the way we, we think about again, public safety, when we think about public health care, as a sense of the public, that we do share something as a country, um, as flawed as, as it may be, um, is, is quite different than it is in the States. What classes do you teach here at Emory? Uh, this semester, I'm teaching a class called Queer Reproductive Justice, ah. uh, which is bringing sort of queer theoretical frames into conversation with reproductive justice, um, as well as um, well, just diff different feminist scholarships. So I'm going to be teaching some indigenous um, philosophy, some science and technology studies, and you know, different ways of thinking about population, kinship, and re reproduction within this the larger sort of RJ frame, which has been developed in the South um, by women of color organizations in Atlanta in particular. In the spring, I'll be teaching an undergraduate class called Queer and Feminist Legal Theory. And I've been teaching for quite a long time a class called Women and the Law, which has never really been about women and the law. It's always been this very intersectional class about race and gender and sexual orientation and women. Um, so I think I'm going to change the, na the name this year. But that one involves basically an overview of, of U.S. Um, constitutional statutory law uh, that has to do with it, issues impacting women, gender, racial minorities. And of course, vulnerability theory too. Oh. Martha and I have taught a class on vulnerability in law for years. 
what are some what are some takeaways? What would you like listeners to remember from this interview with you? Just that vulnerability is not weakness. I just think that's really important for people to to um, they're interested in learning more about the theory to get. You know, they, again, it's it's just it's part of the human condition, and it's it's what what it is to be human. You know, that they, genuinely, I think if we if we recognize that if 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 on a again on a social level, if we could understand that vulnerability as being something shared and not bad. That it would allow us to 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 create a language um, that demands a different state response. You know, demands that our leaders care about that weakness. They they do something to actually to help to ameliorate it, to help to respond to to the, how hard it is to be human. You know, and particularly in this political moment where we're facing you know climate change and you know migration horrors. And you know, they, they, I heard this morning that the U.S. is rescinding. Um, Medical support for for DACA folks that they're, they're living in the United States, essentially send, sending them back to their home countries to die. You know, like that's that is this is not a state that is responding to any kind of human vulnerability. And I think that this this the the language of the paradigm gives us a framework, a legal framework, you know, to, to make a, a to articulate a claim for why it's important that our states do actually you know, think about the human you know, and, and and try to respond. Um, to our well-being without privileging this sort of, again, imaginary autonomy um, and independence over the fact that we are actually social embedded creatures. Vulnerability theory, you know, it's, not, it's, it's a paradigm that allows us to challenge the individualistic values um, that have become so prominent in late capitalism. You know, that this, it's, it's a language of, of solidarity. It's a language that allows us to, to think about the ways in which we make claims upon our states beyond just you know these the, the the negative liberties of of um, civil rights that there's or have been claimed to some degree in the United States about the freedom of press. I mean, God knows we actually need the freedom of press right now too. But um, you know the, the the freedom from as opposed to the freedom to right the, the distinction between the negative and positive liberties. So we need not just freedom from state intrusion, but we need freedom to claim um, a, a a responsive state, a state that actually can provide health care that does give us a Green New Deal that does think about environmental concerns, um, that, that does respond to the migrant crisis at the border, which is not the same way that the Trump, Trump calls it a crisis. You know, I think it's, 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 it's an important language for, for care, you know, for, for social solidarity. So I hope people can be interested in learning more about the paradigm and, again, not equating it with marginalization and, and weakness, because that's not at all what it means. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you sitting down for an interview. Mm-hmm. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.